Welcome to EHS on Tap. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of EHS Daily Advisor. This week, I talked to Dr. Andrew McPherson, Clinical Professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of British Columbia, about dealing with cold weather work hazards. And now, on to the interview. I'm joined today by Dr. Andrew McPherson, Clinical Professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of British Columbia. Welcome to the show, Dr. McPherson. Oh, hey, Jay. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Uh, before we start talking about working outside in the winter, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do. Uh, well, I've been involved in EMS and pre-hospital care since 1990. And although my main work now is in the emergency department and as a trauma attending physician in Victoria, I still am blessed to uh, get outside in these great lands that we call British Columbia and enjoy uh, the outdoors, enjoy the warm and the cold. I'm blessed to be living on the lands of the Lagunquin and the Coast Salish people who've been stewards of these lands for generations. And uh, learning from modern technology and past practices is uh, an exceptional place for us to be in British Columbia as we are uh, learning how to enjoy the great outdoors in a uh, sensitive and, and uh, fabulous manner. So uh, I think, I think uh, from an EMS perspective and what we do in the pre-hospital emergency world, uh, that is very exciting for me, and there's many parts of our world that are changing, but the uh, land that I live on and the people that we're with and uh, how people have survived these climates uh, through their tremendous culture and knowledge is uh, a new learning journey for me. And so I hope to share uh, some of what we can do uh, to try to keep ourselves safe while we're enjoying the great outdoors. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Um, well, so I guess the first thing when you're, you know, getting ready to, to work outdoors is kind of wearing the right clothing. So what sort of, mm. uh, what would you recommend for, you know, sort of the best clothing for folks to wear, you know, when they're working outside in the winter? So with regards to clothing, you've got to understand there's friends in your environment. There's also enemies in your environment. Now, friends are air pockets that are close to your skin that keep you warm. Air pockets are the best insulator. Actually, actually, vacuum is the best insulator, but we can't have vacuum pockets all around us. But air is one of the best insulators that we can get. And so whatever we can do to have pockets of air around us in our clothes are the key. Calories are our other friend. And being able to generate heat and have energy with us are, are the two components that are really important for us. So when you think about how to get air pockets and friends near you, that's the first thing to keep in mind. The other thing is enemies are water. And you being wet and being moist against your skin just wicks away heat rapidly. Water is one of the best conductors of heat. And so when you've got water next to your skin, the heat from your skin just... Oh, off it is, it warms up the water. It's way, it's very, very dangerous. The other enemy is fast moving air outside of you. So if you're in the wind, that air will help, will pull away with heat from your body. So taking all that together, what do you need? You need to have something that wicks away water from your skin against your skin. And wool, we've learned, is really one of the best. Cotton is not a great idea because cotton actually absorbs water and just hangs there. But wool and the polyester um, sort of versions of that help wick it away. So you'll find if you start looking at what clothing is out there, that base layer of having something that's not cotton, but is a wicking element is the key. 
And that what that also does is is the way that they're manufactured now. They have air pockets all based through them, so you've got these micro right. air pockets that are all around you. On top of that base layer, you want something that insulates and is usually you want it to be light. And often the down jackets or the artificial jackets that don't absorb water that are thick and have air pockets all through and they limit the amount of air movement back and forth in that puffy jacket uh, are a key. The third then is something that prevents you from getting wet and something that can block the wind. And that's often there's a lot of, of uh, man-made components now and Gore-Tex is a common one, not plugging them, but that's one of them. There are other components yep. there that block the wind and block the, the water from getting in. And technology is spectacular now. We didn't have this 200 years ago, obviously, but the technology stops raindrops from getting through your outer shell, but is porous enough that moisture that's evaporated can get back out. So inside you're not really humid, but you stop the water from getting in. How many layers you use is dependent on your environment. And the ability to layer up or layer down, if you are uh, outside and hiking and, and doing some backcountry skiing, you probably don't need to have as much gear on as when you stop and start to set up camp. Yeah. And if anybody who's done outdoor activities often will realize, yeah, I'm just going to set up camp now in the same gear that I had while I was hiking. And in about 20, 30 minutes, their amount of heat they've been generating when they're working out is dropping. And all of a sudden they're cold. And so smart outdoor activities, you'd start to layer up when your physical activity drops off. So you have enough insulation around you. So uh, wicking layer doesn't absorb water, puffy, something that has a lot of non-mobile air in it and a waterproof, windproof coat, and then add them as layers as you need. Yeah, yeah I'm, a, I'm a runner and certainly, you know, running in the wintertime, I, I used to make the mistake you know, I'd see what the temperature is and I'd wear way too many layers <laughs> and I'd be roasting about 10 minutes in uh, right. and, and realize, you know, and instantly regret what, what I'd chosen. So I've learned to kind of, you know, keep it fairly, you know, just a couple of layers and, you know, obviously with wicking and uh, because, yeah, you start, you start, you know, right. generating a lot of heat once you get moving. Um, yeah. But then, yeah, if you once you stop, you want to get inside, you know, before you get too cold. So. And then it's it's a bit of a vicious cycle because then what happens is you're too warm for the activities and you right. start to sweat and then your wicking doesn't keep up with it. And now you got a wet shirt on underneath yep. and then it starts to pull away the heat. And then as soon as you stop, you've got you're just totally set up to all of the heat that's in your body just disappears and now you're cold. So, yeah. Great example. So, yeah. So. You know, obviously you've got the clothing kind of figured out, but how how should employers prepare their workers for outdoor work in the winter? What are some of the things that they should kind of make sure that workers understand before they get out there? Yeah, great question, especially because you'll you'll uh, many people are working in the environment that they've grown up and they probably have a sense about where that is. But there's many roles and jobs there now where people come in, they fly in, they fly out, and they may be in an environment mm. that's foreign to them. So I think it's really important that the the um, the team around the employer is able to orient uh, new employees to a to a, a cold area, what that really means. And it, it's everything we just talked about at the top is the first part. Being aware of the environment is really important. Being aware of the forecast about what do we think is going to happen. And then also um, having areas for their employees to escape the cold if they get into trouble. 
And so refugees from the cold, refugees of warmth, refugees away from the wind, refugees from rain are really important. That awareness is, is um, you know, especially on uh, in that awareness in jobs where you are knowingly walking into a environmentally treacherous area is is really the key. And certainly on our ski patrol, if we're doing an out of bounds rescue, weather is one of the very first things that we talk about in safety of the crew. And what is it that we're wearing? How are we getting out there? What's our plan if weather goes sideways? Because you know this might come as a surprise, but sometimes the forecasts aren't right. It's not an exact science. <laughs> And so I know, so you may think it's going to be, but it really isn't. Um, having kits for the crews when you're in uh, austere environments is key. And so being able to layer up and layer down, depending on what they run into, is really important. And so in my kit, I have two layers of upgradable, like a really nice light stuff that I can pack into a small area. So if I needed to spend overnight or get stuck, I've got layers to layer up and layer down. And then we do a lot of uh, warming packs and there's a couple of different versions. There's chemical packs, there's also um, you know, different ways that you can use to, to provide external heat in the case that you get stuck. Um, food and energy is important for preparing and uh, people underestimate how rapidly they will drop their energy stores if they're trying to keep their body warm. And uh, so having a source of sugar have to sort of burn up in order to generate some heat is really important. Goes probably without saying that avoiding alcohol in a work environment is the alcohol is a very potent vasodilator and it really messes up our body's system to control our temperature. And so keeping away from any of anything that will change our skin and our body's reaction to our temperature is key. People often feel that caffeine is a helpful thing for there, but really it creates an increased metabolic rate and it's not an ideal uh, component to have in your rewarming uh, fluids mm -hmm. or having as a source of sugar. Um, so just being wary that the caffeine can add to uh, vasodilation and make it a bit harder to keep your body temperature correct. By vasodilation, I mean our skin controls the amount of blood flow to it to try to control our temperature. Do you know what, Jay, what the largest organ is in our body that controls our, our temperature? Skin's an organ, and it's that. Yeah. And there's all of these micro areas where you try to control it. My nose is a bit colder. I'm going to limit the amount of blood flow to it. My ears are really cold, not less. Man, I'm really warm around my chest and my armpits. I'm going to decrease the blood flow to there. And your body continuously is changing Adjusting. that, modifying, trying to optimize it as you go. Caffeine messes up that system. Mm. So, yeah. Um, what are some cold weather hazards that workers should be wary of? Um, cold, cold water hazards are, are a really risky area if you're not aware of what they are. And so many employers will have been in an environment for a while and, and hopefully just by history will have, have learned the spots and the concerns that are in their area. Um, water that's unexpected because it's going to pull the fluid away, you know, the heat away from you is obviously a concern. Um, I think there's two real strong things to think of when you think about hazards that employers can change. One is uh, transportation and car breakdown. So if you're driving from site to site and that car all of a sudden fails 
and you're often in these sort of remote areas, you're going to be really without a lot of communication and there's communication challenges. Yep. What's the solution of all of a sudden the heat source of that car is gone? So having having that uh, a, a kit within there to provide you with a safe environment for a while, but one of the hazards is failure of whatever um, uh, transportation they're using. So you can think of boats, you can think of cars, you can think whatever that is. So that would be one hazard. The second, I think, when people are outside, the hazard is a job expectation that can't be met in that environment. People can't stay outside for long periods of time, depending on, on you know, um, people can't stay outside on a long-term basis. And uh, if the job expectation exceeds how long they're able to be there, that puts people at risk. So I think a hazard of expectation of performing work in an environment that you can't is something that employers can modify and can change and having a meaningful conversation and set of understanding with their team about how long they're going to be out there and if they can't finish the job that's okay that the employers that will figure out another way to to, yeah. to complete that um i think the third real one is the inability to get out of the cold and so if people are isolated and things turn sideways, but it goes back to having that emergency kit. How can I keep myself warm if things are unexpected and they change? So there's, you can imagine others, there's a list of other things people can think of with regards to hazards, car crashes as you're going there or, or unexpected weather terms. But if your baseline is your work fits within the environment that you're supposed to be in, and you have an emergency kit in case your warming areas aren't accessible, you have a backup. And I think those are two of the key parts of what an employer can do to keep their employees safe. Uh, what about uh, hypothermia? What sort of, uh, you know, what are some of the warning signs and, you know, what you should, you know, what should you do to kind of obviously prevent that? Yeah, so often people, um, there's a progression of hypothermia and the key is recognizing it early. And uh, so using your example, Jay, of after you've finished your run and you're a little bit, you know, you've had sweat, you've had a really good run, you got a little bit of a sweat on and your body starts to drop. It kind of feels a little bit like that. Um, I'm exhausted, I'm wiped out, I've had a really good run, but you get this sort of brain fog. There's a little bit of, I'm not really connecting the dots anymore. I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit slowed, I'm a little bit wiped out, I'm not able to focus, I'm a little bit, that's often one of the key features that people can try to use to say, I think I'm getting cold because I can't focus and concentrate. There's the physical things where you feel that you're shivering, I can feel myself shaking, I'm starting to get numb, I feel weak, I just ugh, feel uninspired, I'm wiped out. But the, the I think the real key is paying attention to you when you realize that your brain isn't connecting the dots as well anymore. That can be the very first one. And you stop and think, wait a minute, I've been sort of kind of shivering the last little bit, on and off, on and off. I think it's time for me to get out of where I am and back out. Mm. As hypothermia gets worse, that confusion, that inability to think can, can worsen. And then our body's physical response becomes more dramatic. Sometimes we have uncontrollable shivering until eventually we use up our energy supplies and then the shivering stops. And now we're into an awful lot of trouble. Mm. So... Pay attention to what's your body doing. Are you shaking? Are you shivering? Do you feel numb or parts of your body feeling off? Can you not feel your fingers and your hands anymore? But I think the other is I can't really think and concentrate. 
and being aware of that, especially if you're doing complex or dangerous tasks in an austere environment is really important. And for us on ski patrol, that's a very key piece. We, we as a team, watch what everybody else is doing, especially when we have helicopters landing and hot, that sort of stuff yeah. is very important that there's calm, cool, and there's a check-in with everybody of, are you good, are we ready, right? Yeah, so I was just gonna say, keeping an eye on your fellow workers just to see how they're doing, because they, they might not be able to articulate it uh, if they are getting confused. Yeah, totally. And one of the things that an employer can do is create a culture where speaking about speaking about that is not only allowed, but is is uh, suggested and encouraged. You know, I think I'm feeling a bit out. I'm putting myself at a bit of risk right now. I just need five minutes to get into a soft spot, put an extra layer on and have a power bar and I'm back with you. Cool. Right. And, and that's been the thing. You know, there's been a lot of focus on um, heat heat stress and heat illness when working in the summertime mm. uh, you know there's been a lot of focus on that uh, certainly in the U.S. and some of the warmer states but um, you know one of the things that they're kind of recommending is that you you know you allow you know you allow workers to take a break to you know to cool down so it sounds like you know it's not a bad idea uh, you know sort of in the opposite uh, in yeah, the cold yeah. situation just that you know to give your workers a little break and not necessarily have them out there you know straight through if you know if, if things are particularly uh, nasty out yeah the other thing people forget is when you're strenuous and you're working outside even it, another thing people forget is when you're working hard outside even in the cold you're generating a fair amount of heat and you're expelling a lot of moisture from your breath when you're working and people get dehydrated pretty easily even though it's cold it's not quite on par with what it is in those heat environments, but people often forget to drink while they're in the cold, yeah. especially because it's awkward because my darn water bottle is now frozen. What do I do? But right. uh, it's important to keep yourself hydrated, uh, you know, not as much as in the heat environment, but in the cold environment it is as well. People forget that and you get two hours in and now you're uh, not only hypothermic, but you're also dehydrated. Mm. Um, what about frostbite? What are some of the, the warning signs and things to watch out for when, you know, when it comes to frostbite? So hypothermia is your body's whole response to being cold. Frostbite is a localized response to being cold. So take, for example, uh, someone with a cotton socks on, non-waterproof boots, one foot gets really wet. And your body says, okay, that's a really important foot. I want to keep that foot. It's a really important foot. And I'm going to send a pile of blood flow to it for a bit. But eventually you're unable to provide enough heat to that foot because the water is wicking away all of the energy that that blood supply is, is providing. And there comes a point where the sort of life over limb part of our body's physiology takes over and says, all right, this isn't working. I'm going to stop until something changes. And our body shuts down the amount of blood flow that goes to the foot. And then rapidly the temperature of the foot starts to drop. And it can drop so much that we actually get ice crystals in the tissue. And what you'll see in the tissue as it's getting cold, it starts to discolor. You'll see it gets, uh, so it, what you'll see in the tissues when it's getting too cold, first it'll get flushed. So you'll see extra blood flow going to it. It'll be this weird looking, wow, is that ever red and hot? It may start to look a bit waxy. You may start to lose feeling. So the nerves are one of the first things to go when the area gets cool. 
and then it changes to become lack of blood flow. So it gets a bit grayer, it can go waxy white or sort of a yellowy bluish. And then eventually you just stop getting blood flow to it. And now you'll have a hand that has no blood flow at all. Plus, as it freezes, we get ice crystals that form in there. And those mm. ice crystals cause damage to all of the cells that are in there. And it, it really looks, it, it ends up almost like a burn. So the thermal energy from heat damages and kills cells. The ice crystals and freezing of cells also damages cells. So we end up with blisters that look like burns. They may have blood in them, they may not. We try to leave those alone. We try to minimize the trauma to the to the uh, frostbitten extremity. Now here's the hard part. This is what, because obviously the answer to this is let's warm the foot back up again. Let's, but um, the first thing we need to do is make sure the whole person is in an area that yeah, we can yeah, start yeah. warm, right? Because if they're in it's minus 15 and we take all of the rest of their clothes and put their foot in a hot water thing, that's great. We're going to warm it up. And then a half hour later, it's going to freeze again. Mm -hmm. And that freeze thaw cycle is really difficult. That's where the trauma, that's where the injury happens. So uh, we do want to rewarm the part, but we want to rewarm the person at the same time. And we want to have an informed opinion that we can probably warm them up and keep them warm. And so... Um. If you're in a situation where you're going to warm a foot, freeze a foot, warm a foot, freeze a foot, warm a foot, freeze a foot, that causes more damage than wait for two hours, then warm it up. That's hard to figure out, right? Like it's hard to plan for what that's going to be, but um, we try to be aware of that. If I'm going to rewarm it, let's rewarm it once. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about chill blains and trench foot, uh, what those are and kind of how they're different from frostbite. Yeah, so if you take just the top layer of the skin and you kind of put it in a rapid freeze-thaw, freeze-thaw cycle, and if you think about all of it, I mean, I don't mean to be rude, but we all have thick skin on the bottom of our feet. Even if you go and get it, uh, you know, softened up and sealed up, there's still a thick skin <laughs> underneath there, right? <laughs> Those layers, as they get frozen or cooled and uncooled, they can start to separate. And when they're moist, that skin on the top actually gets, it, it, we use the word macerated, it gets really moist. It gets uh, and it becomes a nidus of infection. It can be an area that uh, bugs want to grow. There's no blood supply to it. So trench foot was used from back in the term back in the war, where people were running around in the trenches and those feet got really wet and stayed that way for a few days. And so that moist environment, skin on the surface that's not in great shape, often it's cold can be a, a breeding ground for bacteria. So we find infections brewing on top of that poorly perfused, thick damaged skin. Um, so the key goes back to everything that we've talked about before, which is keeping it dry, keeping it warm. And I'll share that in my world, the significant areas I see that as a, a health concern is marginalized people that don't have access to proper clothing. Uh, that are not not housed, and uh, yeah. that is a very significant health risk because it can be take a long time for that area to grow back again. So, um, so yeah, I, I guess you know, I think like you mentioned earlier, having it having a kit with you know sort of replacement socks, other cl clothes, that, different layers that you can kind mm -hmm. of substitute if you need to. Yeah. And you can imagine if people are out in the wilderness and they're out in the cold and they've got two or three days worth of work to do 
and then you remove their ability for any transportation because you can't walk on their feet anymore. So, you know, uh, being able to work in the environment, uh, your feet are a really important thing. I don't think we give yeah. them enough justice because <laughs> if you can't walk and they're not functioning and you've got blisters on your feet, now you're stuck. And if you don't have a communication plan, you're really in trouble, right? Yeah. So uh, how cold is too cold to be working outside? Is there sort of like a, you know, a point where, you know, where you, where it hits? And obviously wind chill figures into that too. You know, what are sort of, sort of uh, you know, the limits that you would sort of recommend, you know, say, you know, you really shouldn't be working outside today? Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's a solid... I think there there are is technology and clothing that we can wear to be out in most parts of North America uh, in you know within reason. I think we could we could start to pick minus fifty and say I'm not going to go work out there. So, oh, sorry, I'm Canadian. That's Celsius. I don't know how to convert <laughs> that to Fahrenheit, but we can pick we can pick some really cold numbers and say that's not reasonable. But in in short uh, exposures with appropriate clothing and access to rewarming and a safety net, I think our our bottom limit is uh, increasing as we go. So uh, without the right clothes, 30 degrees Fahrenheit might be too cold. Mm-hmm. With the right clothes, maybe you're at, at zero degrees Fahrenheit and you can hang for eight hours. On the side of our ski hill, it's frequently minus 10 Celsius. And I'm entirely comfortable spending uh, five or six hours outdoors because I have the right gear. I've got my face covered. I've got a wick around there. I've got a layer over top. There's a wind piece that comes up. I can do that quite easily. And you're yeah. moving too, right? So that helps. And you're moving. Yeah. 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 I so guess I don't have like, a number. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I guess if you're like a security guard and you're just sort of standing in one spot for several hours, that, that'd be less advisable. But, you know, if you're actually doing physical activity and moving around, that at least will generate some some heat for you. Yeah, I think if you're having to stand in the extreme cold, having an external source and trying to warm up your environment would be really important. Um, So I don't have an absolute number for you. I think technology allows us to dig into slight, you know, into colder environments easier now. And it's all very dependent. You, you, there are certain, you know, uh, a very healthy 20-year-old who doesn't have any blood flow or blood pressure issues and is fit and strong with a reasonable body mass and a reasonable amount of body fat is a very different person from a 79-year-old female with diabetes and no body fat. So yeah. two extremes, but if you're a 50-year-old diabetic who's very thin with no insulation, that's a pretty risky person to be. So your personal um, uh, your personal situation is, is just as important as what's happening outside, which is just as important with what you're wearing. So it, it's tailored to the, uh, to the scenario. And if you're a supervisor and you've got a work crew who's out in, you know, say sub-zero temperatures or, you know, at least like, you know, very cold or very, very windy, um, do you recommend at least like having sort of that some breaks built in so they can get out of the cold for a little while and warm up a little? I think it generates uh, camaraderie and teammanship or, um, at, you know, having that opportunity for the team to pause and get together and look at each other and chat and see how you are um, to touch base with what their cognition is. How are they thinking? How are they feeling? How tired does that person look? I think is really important. How often do they happen? You can have teams that are working outside that can check in with each other, go, yeah, we're all good. Let's carry on. 
Um, having it, if the team is new and you don't really know each other and you're trying to find each other's kind of limits and comfort zones, I think it's really important to have a safe space to check in and go, hey, how y'all doing? Everything good? Have your hot chocolate, perfect, next, and let's go back out. But certainly in my world and my experience with our ski patrol team, because I we know them all and uh, I, you know, you can get a look on somebody's face this isn't working for me after you learn your friends and learn your team i think you can expand and lengthen that period of time but again i think a key thing the employer can do is their staff safety is the first part that's the key to whatever task they're doing finishing the task is number two and yeah. so trying to limit those expectations from the boss that we got to finish this and get it through so let's just warm up for five and get back out there and get her done uh let's just check that and make sure that the team is on board with that and not put them in a position to start to go further down that pathway, right? Yeah, makes sense. Well, Dr. McPherson, thank you so much. This has been uh, very educational and obviously, uh, you know, I know it's uh, it's pretty chilly out here where I am. I'm sure it is where you are, so stay warm. Thanks, Jay, I appreciate that. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. That wraps up episode 187 of EHS on tap. You can find more information about the show and listen to on-demand episodes at ehsdailyadvisor.blr.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time.